Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Thank you so much, Anya and Skylight, um, for having me. This is a really humbling group of people. So many people who I love out there and a lot of people I don't know. So thank you guys for being here. Um, can you hear me okay? How's this? Good? Okay. Cool. Um, well, uh, I'm going to read a story, and then I'm lucky enough to get to talk with Maggie Nelson, who's been kind of a magic genie for getting this book into the world. Um, so um, we'll do two, the, both of those things, me read and then do a little bit of talking. Um, I also really want to thank Letia Perda, who's helped get this book into the world in a massive way as well, and it probably wouldn't be here otherwise. So. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I feel just the same way. Um, so the story I'm going to read is the second to last story of the collection and the last story that I wrote, um, and it's called Beside Myself. Under the sheets, I was beside myself. Every way I turned, I was there. It was hot twisted up in my Ikea cow king. <laughs> Desert towns like Flamingo Heights and Morongo sprawled beyond my windows darkly. I'd been drinking beer again, despite the new studies saying hops are full of estrogen. They'd snuck it in somehow. The microbrews, IPAs, and apocalypses were even worse. I touched above my scars. Was the tissue regrowing? Fox, hemp, soy all had it too. Back in L.A., my girlfriend knew this. Too much estrogen made it hard to have a baby. I swayed at the bathroom's doorway. She was two hours east. Hard to have a baby, together or apart. In bed again, I spent some time Instagramming, reviewing my follow requests. Every name almost 100% familiar. I'd narrow in on an image. Can't trying in the shock of blue light to sleuth out whose Takate can had just been tossed onto which gallery floor, whose taste in succulents evinced real sensitivity, whose carefully composed meals were being held out for my approval. Was that who? Wasn't that? No. Yes? I didn't know. Casualness was key. Better to let them sit on the dock unaccepted, but also unrejected. I pulled over a desert mag from the bedside table. I was halfway into an article on the Mojave Green Rattlesnake. They had a neurotoxin most snakes did not. More armed, they maintained powerful enemies. The king snakes and milk snakes, namely, what the article called other royalty. Other royalty also bothered me. In junior high, my best friend and I had performed a less than consensual role play. The friend was Queen Elizabeth. I, more flawed, so more passionate, was Mary Queen of Scots. <laughs> we dropped daggers through the grates in each other's lockers. Mary. 
My dear Elizabeth, the notes read. The fight was about loyalty, how my body had sworn allegiance to something fatally perverted, gym teacher-like, which everyone knew permanently consigned me to the two-way mirrors in the locker room, stuck with whoever else was also sitting behind them, eating microwaved food and looking. My dearest Mary, Elizabeth. Living on borrowed time, I took solace knowing Mary's dogs poured out from under her skirt, biting her executioner after her head rolled. Outside, it was mute for miles. I reached up and adjusted the bedside lamp. To protect themselves, Mojave rattlesnakes performed something called body bridging. Hiding their heads, they rose up from the sand in flat, racket-like loops. Now each snake became larger, morphing into multiple bodies or a new composite body made up entirely of obstificating bends. Refusing to be consumed, each snake self produced another, more terrifying self. I flung the magazine and turned off the light at ease. Drift in a new place long enough and you no longer fill your adopted world in such sharp, euphoric relief. That abandoned, pinky-hued, cinder-block shack whose emptiness a few days ago was so significant, I no longer saw it. I let it enter me. We were joined. Everywhere, boundaries blurred, as if from out the windows of a moving car. I was always driving anyway, covering great distances, speeding from place to place. There were more sex offenders in the desert than anywhere else. Everyone knew this, apparently, the same way everyone knew about the ubiquitous marines and hippies who covered the landscape or popped up from what seemed like surprising holes against the otherwise lunar flat. Was it a universe-made law? Some bodies need more space? The thought returned to me as, on a morning trip to Sky Village Swap Meet, I swerved over for a couple huddling against a scraggy creosote tree. Hi, I said, zipping down the window, feeling the air conditioning rush away. We're coming from the dentist, she said. They unscrewed four of his teeth. She gestured to a wrinkled bag he, in an outsized Lakers jersey and oily jeans, was clutching. There was no town in any direction, at least not for miles and miles. They couldn't be dangerous because she was there. Or was it I was not ever in danger? No one looked at me with lechy thoughts. No one tried to touch me in the grocery line at the Vons. I wasn't given things or not given things because of my attention-soliciting bulges. I twisted the radio back to full decibels. There was a female component in every equation that either made things safer or less safe. We're from Texas, she shouted over the blare. They dutifully climbed into the back, preserving the passenger seat I noticed for the other me. He nodded. Never seen the desert or the mountains, came for a funeral, and just stayed. I surveilled the hazy glow of the road ahead. Part of him was in a bag, and the rest of him was also contained by something, now my car, and the white Mojave heat writhing across the jagged valley I'd likewise crammed myself into two weeks ago. Where to? I shouted, gunning ahead. Newspaper headlines, 6 p.m. TV reports like Sickos masquerading as a couple from Texas suddenly mixed with the throb of the stereo. Out here, I listened exclusively to dance music. It was the only thing big enough. Never seen a mountains? Never seen a desert? I fastened them with the rear view. What if the funeral hadn't happened yet? 
because the death hadn't happened yet. Pull over here, the woman said, perhaps sensing my edginess. I reclamped the wheel. We were in sight of the Valero anyway. She unbuttoned her lock, but the bag bugged me. Open up, I said, craning my neck as they got out. He shrugged and held it to me. The contents were a raw red color, having just been wrenched from his mouth. Sky Village Swap Meet was behind the Yucca Valley Arco station. You turned into it from Old Woman Springs Road. Old Woman Screams, I always said in my head. But now I didn't notice it, just made the matter-of-fact substitution. Old Woman did scream. I parked. Recently, I'd been gripped with a phobia about places... It seemed to me that places were inevitably marked by their future potential. I was at Sky Village Swap Meet now. But I might also be here again? And who knew under what conditions? I wound in among the stalls of rugs and chip ceramics, crunched hats. This future visit scratched, waiting to humiliate me. Being beside myself made it harder, as if I was twinning and the twin of me twinning and them too twinning again. In L.A., I was trying to get my girlfriend pregnant with my brother's sperm, but his sperm had a morphological quirk that meant it wouldn't enter the egg. Each time we tried, it was beautiful, portent with signs. I woke in the middle of the night in the grip of huge white birds. I heard voices. Somewhere, fatherhood had started. Then nothing. This produced a rage so deep, I thought I'd never be free of it until the next month when I begged that we try again. I loved those aberrant microscopic shapes. Given the chance, I knew they could do things others couldn't. Plus, they seemed to prove even more definitively than the fact I'd seen him emerge grayly from our shared mother, my brother was related to me. There was something in our mutual code that refused the dictate form as function. He was related to me. My non-working body set the terms and forced the relation. He'd always been mine. My responsibility, above all, not to hurt. But had my coming out so misfitting like this years ahead already hurt him? I touched a stained blotched blanket. Fifty bucks. The vendor, tanned, black cheek scruff was hot and loose. Fuselage, I felt, staring. I wanted to be that way. Could I also, as fuselage, jerk him off behind the dingy bathroom block, hold his junk in my palm, drive the 10 west one-handed, whispering procreation songs? (laughs) I'd arrive. His sperm would shuttle through my psyche, exit my invented spigot. It had to be okay. We were on a biological deadline. Time, in this regard, was panting. Not mine, drilled my body. But my hand remained on the blanket, The heat made me cloudy. My fingers had the sensitivity of toilet paper rolls. Fuselage was thick. It left a greasy skid. Didn't it just mean body? Fifty, he said again. His ears, too small, broadcasted an overabundant relationship to control. A not-so-secret anal vibe. My brother's ears were nice, open, large. He was a DJ. I smiled grittily, moved on. How was it then that the other me, now completely rogue, was nodding yes as the vendor explained the blanket had been his dead mother's, was an heirloom, maybe even turn-of-the-century Navajo. Moreover, that he was about to call it quits, was packing up, I was his last customer. Here's 60, that other me said, waving away the change. 
I jammed the blanket into a too small plastic grocery bag. Encouraged, he dug out an Altoids box from his jeans pocket. Ever seen a rough diamond? I paused. Did diamonds in the rough actually exist? I could only picture the shape described, in fact defined, by diamond. I bent in, coughing from peppermint dust. The tin was full of splintered safety glass. Windshield, he admitted, carefully repocketing them. The vendor rose fed into a central plaza to my left, Sky Village concession. Straight ahead, what the red arrows staked everywhere had been announcing, Bob's Crystal Cave. From what I could tell, it was a slumpy dome made of spray foam. The blanket would be good, I thought. My girlfriend would like it if she visited, and she had to visit. We had things to discuss. But lately I hadn't felt like talking. A sharp-edged disc would bob in my throat, would swell into a wet, gushy sack. I'd swallowed a water weenie. How were we ever going to make a baby? Leaning from the noon sun into the sheltered overhang between the bathrooms and the crystal cave, tears clustered up. I was crying. A voice from my side. Would you like to see my joy? Must be Bob, I guessed. White ZZ top beard, prospector's garb, his mouth cranked to smiling. He had a joy. The other me wanted him to feel good about it. I adjusted my hat so I could wipe my eyes unnoticed. Okay, I said. Pressing flat my freshly made chest, I balanced by making my voice higher, less threatening. I'm beside myself, I said gesturing at what was evident. This is my second cave, Bob said, ignoring us. When they tried to take Sky Village from me, I smashed the first one to pieces. We navigated the darkness of the entrance. Slathered with polyurethane, it had the atmosphere of a mine shaft that brown strings of party goo had exploded over. I kicked Snake Patrol into the hot black space. I put everything I have into her, he whispered pushing me through a small doorway in the cave's hump-like frame. He stayed outside, his grip tight. I'll lock her so no one else can get in. His joy, his joy. The door clicked. I cut myself from jiggling it. I wanted Bob to feel the force of my support. I breathed the aquarium air. This was a trust act, but regarding the astroturf, the chemically non-living smell, the amethyst glued in every direction across the floor that also contained miniature diorama-style lakes, glades, rivers, made similarly of sad, shiny crystals, I began to sweat. Some bodies needed more space. When I stretched my arms, they touched each other in mere effect, then touched the all-too cave-like sides. I shoved back against the small platform bench. A plexiglass porthole discharged daylight at the crystals, but sitting under it where the bench was, no one could see me. Leaning over, I tested the door, stiff and unyielding. Was this where he put them? The kids? A sex offender. It couldn't be more clear. Dude was an abuser, the worst kind of felon, hiding out there near the disco dogs and agave slush in plain sight. Talk. I'd recently changed my text notification. The sound, now a wooden mallet banging a hollow nut. It was my brother. Just his name and my eyes swam wetly. I'm locked in Bob's crystal cave, I texted back. (laughs) What? Many question marks. Alien emoji, many question marks. He typed. I know, I said. 
<laughs> then I followed it. I couldn't help myself with my usual. All the phallic signs, the eggplants and bananas and corn cobs, the lollipops, cactus, and volcanoes. I was older, was supposed to be the one helping him, but these days the dam had exploded. I couldn't stop asking him for everything. Is anyone with you, he said, sister? I glanced in front of me at the Crystal River. Water flowed down, but it seemed sulfurous. Off. I hated the smell. I was sure nothing was living here, the crystals least of all. Sperm, on the other hand, were tough, had an epic lifespan, could swim for days. Moreover, in any given ejaculation, each of the millions of tadpoles had been growing for an entire three months, doing what I couldn't do, becoming. Baby, are you there? I sat up, unflattening a minuscule forest. My legs felt sodden. My girlfriend, who'd been in L.A. all morning, was outside the crystal cave. Her jade eyes, her voice. Wasn't there another word, jadeite? Green. Impressed, someone had recently told her that. Yeah. I thought they were jade too, but had always been too embarrassed to say it. Hi, she said. You're here. I rubbed my arm where a finger-shaped bruise was surfacing. Um, some guy Bob, she said. He's at the med tent asking for band-aids. Good, I thought. I imagined horrified fathers or raging mothers with baseball bats. Your brother called. Her voice was muted by the foam. Baby, you've been in there for hours? A disco dog's wrapper and two wadded cans of Pepsi lay on the patch of floor on top of the blanket I had apparently unrolled. Do you think you might want to come out? Had that been me, some hours earlier, re-jogging the door? The lock was swollen, but it opened. Then, exiting into the brutal heat of the afternoon, I'd stretched, free, Bob, founder of Sky Village Swap Meet, an outsider desert art icon, was kneeling near the pavement, spraying foam from a canister. His suspenders stretched across his thin back. It was too hot for flannel, but under the flannel shirt, a spine. And under that, there was so much to conceal, it made me sick. Pervert, I'd said, socking my foot into the pouch of his hip as close to his groin as I could reach. It was soft. I retracted, weak with something adrenaline-like. He burbled quietly and clutched towards my leg. I pushed him away. As he fell, a small red splotch, juice, popped from his mouth. Pervert, I had repeated, but with less assurance. It seems like no one had seen. Did anyone ever see anything? I fumbled with the textured door of the cave, panting, then pulled myself back in. You always put yourself through stuff like this, my girlfriend said through the door, trying to write. While working on a story, everything was at play. I found it very painful. Even when editing, for instance, if I wanted to change a word, I tried to keep as many of the original letters on the screen as I could, fitting them into their replacement so they wouldn't lose their place, get infinitely lost. This isn't about a story, I said. Oh. The other me lounged near the tiny calcite lake, the me who believed I was only an imprint of another, that met with the flesh and blood world of real dicks and vaginas, I'd disappear. Completely empty like this, she'd have to leave me. 
I bought a blanket, I said. When my girlfriend and I fought, she went away somewhere, eons away. I couldn't reach her. But on good days, we were together in a bright world, and she'd tell me things I'd misremember or get purely at their surface valence, but nonetheless love. Like how my earlobes were long, Buddha-like, she said. Or what it meant that among all life forms, humans alone were defenseless, vulnerable blobs clothed solely in skin. The idea of anyone else's biology entering her made me crazy. Ever seen a rough diamond, I said? I bent down. Breaking crystals from the gluey cave floor, I forced their purple saws into my pockets. I couldn't decide. Had the protective mechanism coiled away inside us somewhere? Or is it true? The possum has its death, the Mojave snake its bridge, the squid its inky cloud, the Texas horned lizard even shoots blood from its eyes. Well, we, most evolved, need nothing. Thanks. So, thanks, you guys. It's a really nice listening crowd. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> wow, there's Here's tons of people here. It's awesome. I had no idea from over there. Um, oops. No, hang on a second. I gotta fix my life. I'm gonna fix my chair. Okay, great. Thanks for coming, Maggie. Um, so I'm just going to ask Jess a few things and then you guys are going to ask Jess a few things what do you think about that? cool okay great Um, I was just saying before um, to Latia and um, anybody who would listen that uh, there are so you know a few books that come along that you're just you know so deeply excited about and I'm so deeply excited about this first book of Jess's stories so for those of you who obviously you just heard one but you know who don't have it you really just have to get it and I think that there's so many things I'm excited about about it and I don't really know where to start um, Jess and I did a little interview for Poets and Writers magazine um, so I'm kind of cheating by returning to that interview tonight but part of what was so rad about doing that interview with Jess was that um, Jess's answers to my questions like you were the way that you talk about your work and about thinking about making stories is as you know racy and unusual and original and thought provoking as the stories themselves which was I would have guessed that but it was really (laughs) exciting to see that so I thought maybe you know I one of the things that I'm kind of entranced by about this book I don't really use the word like I don't you know what does it mean we say it means like original but there's something about the way that Jess's stories hang together you know kind of on the cusp of you know you called it here like you said through sheer will they clump and I think there's something about uh these kind of sculptural worlds that come to mind where it's not it's not these normal words like collage or non sequitur or whatever but it really like when you said clump I was feeling like there are these other feelings about how and why the stories hang together and you you were saying some interesting things about um, saying is it possible I've just written the same story 12 times and I wonder if you wanted to talk about in the book like how you 
know, you also said that it could have been all a novel or there was another novel in yeah. it all. I don't know, just like how, how they clumped and how... I did how have a worked, moment you know? with my editor right before we took our last pass where I typed really anxiously to her, oh my God, Julie, did I just write the same story 12 times? And just being a good editor, she had to say like, no, no, it's okay. But I still think it's possible. <laughs> that in some way, I guess they were all stories kind of... <coughs> stuck in the body, trying to figure a way out, and then kind of finding a little bit of a lurch of like a, a bad reflection, maybe, or a hard reflection. Um, that I guess they came by them as, as honestly as they could, but um, the clumping is, is maybe almost a desperation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I did. I got to do a reading in New York last two weeks ago, and there, there was a funny kind of friendly argument between Amy Silman, who's the awesome painter whose image we borrowed for the cover, and Lynn Tillman, who's like a real hero of mine, um, about plot in the stories and how plot moved. And it, it was really exciting for me to hear what they were saying about it, and I guess what kept coming back to me was like, oh my God, like the next sentence, and maybe many writers, many, many of you are writers and feel this way too, the next sentence or the next word only comes because it's the only one that can. Mm-hmm. I like I'm I'm so mm-hmm. desperate for what's going to come and hold that platform and keep it going and I don't know what it's going to be and I certainly don't know where it's going. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's like something that when your writers people are always saying like, "Well, how did you decide to write about this?" and you're mm-hmm. like, "Have you ever been inside a desperate mind of, you know, reaching for whatever yeah. it is that feels like the thing of necessity, you know?" And, and you know, you said which I thought was so great, you were qu- quoting Annie Dillard saying, "Well, no, forget that about Annie Dillard." You were saying each story <laughs> is its own exercise in quote unquote the only thing that could come out um, yeah. and then the quote from Annie Dillard was about if something's gone wrong you know you usually made a mistake somewhere and you have got to go back and find where the mistake was but all of these kind of feelings I really related to in the way you were talking about you know desperation necessity yeah. you know like that there's kind of only one way this can go but you're in the dark and I don't totally know. and I mean maybe you relate to this as like having poetry be a very large part of your writing practice but um, I do think it. my writing practice is often moving around the world, mm-hmm. not knowing what's going to happen in the work, really wanting to make work, but feeling really pretty bad about the work, and then maybe grabbing onto like a little fragment of something from daily life and hoping mm-hmm. I can drag it back into like my computer and attach mm-hmm. it to the very teetery structure that's already there. Mm-hmm. Um, like in the case of this story, Beside Myself, it really only existed because I was sitting thinking, God, it's so funny, the idea of being beside oneself. Like, what if in 3D you were actually beside yourself? And that was all that the story had, was just to test that out. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, then it, and then it developed its own strange form from there, I guess. Yeah, and there's a moment in that story which... It doesn't recur in any exact way in the other stories, but where it, you know, it, it just swerves really uh, unexpectedly into being about writing at the very end and I and also does this thing that a lot of Jess's stories do which I find again like so original insofar as that like they're not surreal and they're not you know like all these kind of words that we're so used to using it's like they're they're um they're like vibrating scaffolding or something. It's not about um, like a swerve into, is it really happening? Like, is she, you know, like, is this character really in the cave? Like, it's not, that all those questions don't really apply, but they're also not precious in the way that kind of stories that are built on a more kind of prose poetry logic, um, like they, they are, like that story is about very 
concrete things I could name and analyze and go through as well, you know. I think maybe what holds them together is like the anxiety of the writer's brain or Mm -hmm. just the anxiety of being in the body or trying to figure out a way to and so that carries through most of the I mean they're very funny but they're also very like rhythmically punctuated and um, I was reading along while Jess was reading and you know you have a lot of one line lines and there's a lot of kind of um, a feeling of stopping and starting that can and maybe you relate to this but that can sometimes be a problem too I think like the way I work is like I write a sentence and then I read it in my head like 1,000 times Mm -hmm. and then I like email it to myself like five more times and like (laughs) then I know immediately when I open the email if it's right or wrong and then I go back and change it but then I don't know again and then I email it again (laughs) and so then by the time like it would ever get to my editor she would be like I don't know this is a little extra in here and it was so locked in my brain like the Mm -hmm. cadence of those seven or 15 words together that it was like impossible for me to think that they didn't could not exist in that order anymore. Did she do a lot of line editing with the book, or like? She um, she's great. My editor um, is at Catapult, Julie Bunton, and she just came out with her first novel, this really beautiful um, book called Marlena. Um, so like that was like a huge benefit to have an mm-hmm. editor. First of all, just to have an editor. I was so mm-hmm. thrilled to. <laughs> I was so thrilled to have yeah. Maggie champion the book, and I was so thrilled to have the press pick it up and to get to work on it with people and talk back and forth and send some of the emails not just to myself but to the editor um, but she was great because she's a writer and so she really knew like what it's like to be in a writer's head um, so she she didn't like take apart lines yeah. too much but sometimes she would say like that's a little much Jess like mm-hmm. do you really you know it was like almost like sometimes I'd be writing at exclamation points of like exuberance or something and she'd be like you maybe just try it without that one word and I would like really kind of like stew about it and then usually she was right and I think I said to her like you know I didn't take all of her suggestions and some of them I really fought for and mm-hmm. probably in five years like I would agree that all of her suggestions <laughs> right. yeah 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 you said I mean this is your first book and you said that it, you said I love the sentence you said getting here was white knuckling it for 10 years on hope fumes <laughs> and I don't know I wonder if you want to say anything more about that <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's like that thing and I'm sure everybody in this room can relate to it that's like it's very possible it'll never happen and you don't know until you're on the other side of it that it could and so the whole time you're on the other side of like whatever that thing is like a book or a relationship or a job or a painting or like a baby or moving somewhere or whatever like um you're completely up against and and living in the feeling that it won't and so um like i said in that interview like it happened to be this collection of stories that really came Mm -hmm. they didn't come together in fact they're still not together they're in some way sort of disparate and Mm -hmm. and weird together but Mm um i wrote other things that maybe would have been a first book i was, was really hopeful for a first book i wrote a novel that is on my computer. (laughs) (laughs) We may see it again. This is kind of a weird question, but I just thought it was odd since it came up that in this interview we did, I had mentioned Dennis Johnson, and and then he died like the day after we had the interview or something. I know, it was so wild, but like, I don't know, I just wonder if there's anybody. I mean, we were also talking, I thought it was really interesting with, um, I was asking Jess some questions about you know, do you care about fiction or the short story or like any of these genres? Because the writing to me feels very excitingly apart from giving a crap about um, any of those things. And I was thinking about how many genres he worked in and how kind of tone and um, and movement really, like I think in his 
work and you had said something um, in here about feeling and like yeah. kind of charting um, I don't know I'm like I'm like I'm like writing something and talking because I'm just trying like there's something else about a structural principle that means that means trying to get that into it and I wonder whether from him or anybody else things that you think yeah like if maybe like the structural principle is like porousness and intense sensitivity and trying to like find a way to like deal with yourself on the page and that could be anything mm-hmm. like I mean that is pretty much what hits, hits me and hit me hit hit me and hits me most about Dennis Johnson's work is mm-hmm. like how extremely emotional it is and how you don't know he's going to be okay kind of like mm-hmm. throughout mm-hmm. yeah yeah and yeah, yeah and yeah. so uh yeah these characters are all like that too in here and I really love that because there's no um actually there's that Dennis Johnson story about the shaving and like the rehab and I think at the end the guy says like talking the bullet hole like tell me I'm going to be tell me it's yeah. going to be all right but it just kind of ends and you're like it's not going to you know, it's, it's not going to be all right or it is all right already or I don't even know what but this whole book has a really similar you know it's very it's 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 unnerving but it's unnerving like a great you know roller coaster ride <laughs> you know I really like look like we all did probably like reread a lot of his work after finding out that he had died and um, like just like so gratefully realized how much um, he impacted my writing in terms of adjectives mm-hmm. like his yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm sorry not adjectives verbs uh-huh. his was pretty much like lack of adjectives yeah. and or yeah. like perfect adjectives but his yeah. verbs like, yeah but you guys do something similar with you know with similes too because this book starts off in the morning the waves glowed like uranium a deep sweat coming up off the seafloor it was beautiful but it was nerve wracking too being that close to the future which is just a great way to start a book but you know and, and he was always kind of like you know the midwestern clouds came down like brains or whatever you know just kind of like, <laughs> yeah, just, like just like rolling an image Zooming, down a bowling yeah. alley you know that um that just gets you and then you're moving to jumping to you know talking about obviously moving to you know nerve-wracking being that close to the future and then we just have no idea where the story is off to well that's those two sentences sat on my computer just those for quite a while right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right and then you were like i know they'll start the book yeah. um all right well just and i can talk for a long time but you, there's a lot of you so i'm gonna i'm gonna quit with me and I'm sure I'll keep talking too, but <laughs> but if anyone wants to, yeah. It's kind of one of those magic things where I was like, anyone who's close to me could attest to. It was like beating my head against the wall, having like internal sob sessions. Like, will this ever be a book? Can a press ever take it? Um, is it possible to be in the world um and people had said really nice things to me like if you want a book you'll have a book you know or things that like seem like <laughs> you say that about babies too, yeah totally no if you want it your book is out there and it was like okay i'd love to think that but you know i just didn't feel like it was hard to get even these stories you know some of the stories like this or some of the stories that are in the book out into the world um and then catapult kind of formed itself and came into being like at the last moment like a little rescue raft and um but it did feel like an exercise and like oh the thing wasn't there yet like the right press because people would say like what's your perfect press and i wouldn't really be able to say like oh it's this i mean there's presses i love and admire hugely of course but um it feels like a really natural fit and I, i feel really lucky in that way and they're awesome and also the book is so good that like it's almost like the world of publishing didn't deserve it, you know? <laughs> no, it's true. It's true because you know how it is where you're like like what press is going to like just what press deserves it, you know? So I hope they deserve it. That's what I hope. <laughs>
Yeah. Hi. Um, hey. Uh, there was a line at the beginning of that um, that is it was something like different bodies like need like more space, um, and you're not really talking about like size or shape. You're more talking about like I think it was like pedophiles and um, and marines, like those kinds of like bodies or people. Yeah. And and you're in the desert. You're in like Yucatan. I was just out like and and. Um, and you're and you're having this experience of like being beside yourself and you talk about different bodies being different spaces but also like I'm just wondering I don't even know if this is a question but if you can speak on like the way different spaces like like could you have like did this particular sensation of being beside yourself kind of like need the space of like this desert scenery and like the weirdness of that and like the vacancy and just the like surrealness of it because I don't know how often in somewhere like LA we get the to we get to feel beside ourselves. Yeah. Um. Well, like the funny part of that line, I guess, and I'm, I'm sh- hopefully like that came across, and it, probably it's so obvious that it did. Is you know that even though it's being projected on like sex offenders and marines and things that aren't this person clearly like this person is feeling very much like they need space and um that that's like a complicated negotiation with self and then also that i think most of the narrators in different ways in the stories are feeling this kind of like jumpiness around the body so it's like it may and maybe that's in the cadence of the writing to some degree which is like i'm in it but i'm not in it like i can't stay in it it doesn't feel good to stay in it or i don't know how to or there's a blur between me and the world and so like that kind of beside myself literally is like being really ruminated on in that story but is like maybe kind of happening a lot where it's like you have the body here and something spreads even now sitting in this room having this conversation my head's appear you know bigger or smaller bigger that sounds terrible but like you know just like an itchiness or like oh god I'm anxious or I'm nervous or how do I sit here you know um so and that's not exactly answering your question, but um, I did go to the desert to finish writing the book, and I did my writing did change, and it was out there. And I think that there's something like very particular about geographies. Like there are stories in the book that are like really like weird New Jersey Turnpike stories, you know. And that was because that's where I was. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. But there's sometimes the weird thing with there'd be like a deep shame and also like an insistence that like I was also then ashamed about, you know, so I'd be embarrassed that she was pointing out that something was too far and that I would really want to keep going with it too far and we go back and forth. Um, But I think like I've felt in writing that trying to hit something on the head or say something too directly often doesn't work. Um, the reader or myself feels like it's being told something and I'm hoping to not tell exactly but like have there be a, just a kind of lived experience in the work I guess uh, uh, yeah sorry. Um, okay so I think this this question may be a very roundabout way of asking like, what you're reading 
when you're writing this, but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna see where it takes me. Um, like, did you feel as though the things you were consuming while you're working on this book, like, had to be very curated and like disciplined, or were they kind of like coming to you from without? And you're like, oh, that inspires me, and like. It's sort of like, it, um, it's a really good question and a little bit hard to answer in that, like, what Maggie said, reading a little bit of my answer to her, in some ways I think this book kind of grew over a very long time. Like, even though the stories aren't 10 years old, like, it's like some of the feelings are and some of the, a lot of the things that, like, I tried really hard for and then had to throw away still feel like they're part of that book because everything that I've written is part of that book until this book exists and then maybe now there can be some... I feel like not of that, or maybe, you know, because you have so many beautiful books out, like, maybe you feel like they're all still, like, stringing along, but, um, there, there were probably moments where I tried to be, like, really, like, oh, I'm going to read this book, and this is going to direct it, and then mostly it was more, like, grab bag, you know, like, the, the more I tried to, like, put intentional stuff into it, the more that stuff didn't fit, and then the more, like, um, I had an experience, like, walking along, um, and then last story, the narrator's walking in the supermarket in the desert again, like, in sweatpants, and, like, feeling kind of lonely, but also feeling relieved that nobody's looking at them. Um, and that's, I didn't go to the supermarket thinking I was going to be able to import that into the work, but I certainly did have that experience. And so that kind of stuff, like, that just gets kind of pulled from life ends up being the stuff that sticks more, I think. Any last question? Any Myron? What's next? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I have it. Um, or we have a nine-week-old baby, so that's... <laughs> that's now. That's now. <laughs> and I, was, I just got to go on a really um, fantastic and weird trip to the Arctic, and um, I'm really thinking a lot about that geography, so... Maybe somehow that'll filter into the next work. Awesome. You guys got to get the book. And there are only a few of them, so like move as fast as you know how to move. You'll find a number Girl, under your seat. And if you it... Go now. All right. Yay, Jeff. Thanks, you guys. Thank you, Maggie. Thanks, Maggie, so much for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.